0: This is Angelica and Erwan, and welcome to The Cluster Speaks, a podcast talking about Degenesis, the primal punk role-playing game.
1: Hey, Erwan, how are you doing? Hey, Angelica, doing super good. It's been a long, long time since, uh, since we did this.
0: It has been a very long time, months now. And I'm sure you've been very busy.
1: Yes, almost a year. It's been a good year. We've been working on a lot of nice stuff. An exciting year, satisfying year, and uh, Justician has been released. So that's a big milestone crossed on our to-do list.
0: Yeah, and everyone should have Justician by now if they've pre-ordered it. So I'm sure you guys are starting to hear all the feedback. Um, I don't know if you guys are getting any criticisms. I was going to say criticisms, but I can't imagine what those would be.
1: So, no, actually, we, I mean, we read the feedbacks on Discord and everywhere that might pop on a daily basis. And everything has been super positive so far. So, we're very happy with that. And yeah, like people have had the books in their hands for about almost three months now because we released it like in January. So, it was a, quite a bunch of time and people are starting to reach the end of the book. Like, 700 pages is a lot. But so, yeah, so now we can finally talk about it. We can go into uh, what it was like to develop this book. And to do that, because I'm not the most qualified person to talk about it, we today have two guests we have first a returning guest eric hello hello and a new guest none other than my boss friend and the author of the genesis marco hello
0: welcome both of you it's so great to have you both on the podcast how are you today how's everything going
2: eric you want to start
3: yeah everything's great saturday morning get to hang out with you guys this is fantastic had episode 53 of our. the Genesis campaign last night, going really strong, loving it, loving everything that's happening with the game. So, and I'm super happy to be here. Wonderful.
2: Angelica, Eric, I'm a big fan of the work you do. You do God's work on the Discord and in the community. I'm a big fan of everything that you guys produce, the content that you bring to the table. I was super happy to do this with you today. So, I hope I can contribute some good stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess we'll start a little bit more general in terms of our discussion. Since Justition did come out and it's a huge world building project, let's talk about what world building degenesis looks like for you. Like what goes into your process, you know, when you start thinking about building the city of Justition itself, like what are your first steps and where do you go from there? Well, I
2: mean, the the human factor is always the most important part, and I'm really obsessed about details. So I think trying to understand how a city of that size in that point in time, with all the dangers that the world brings, can function and function to an extent where the interactions between the different parties appear logical and in some way codependent on one another, is one of the first parts of creating that city. And I think when I look back into the first edition, what Chris and I did when we developed Justician for the first uh, time back in, what was that, 2004, we had a very clear idea of the concept of security for freedom. So this is what you exchange at the gates of Justician when you enter the city. You put yourself into the hands of the judges, and there goes your freedom, bye-bye. So this is really like the core concept, and like if you look at the book as a whole, like that principle is true throughout the entire protectorate. You can feel that sense of belonging to something wherever you are in the protectorate, because everything is under the banner of Justician. But at the same time, you know that there's people spying on you. You know that there's an easy way to land up or land in the cleft if you, however, manage to piss off the powers that be, and. Um, that is really the core concept of the world building in itself. Like you start from there and then everything else comes after, grows into it, so to speak.
0: I did notice that that is a very consistent theme as I was reading Justician. There was never a point when I was reading a book where I thought that it felt incongruous with the content that came before, which I think just goes to show you how having that theme in mind in the very beginning really helps keep everything as one cohesive whole.
2: Well, I think the benefit that I had was that we had a first edition of the book. So when we released the first edition, on well, Chris and I, back in 2004, the first book we worked on was Justician. So like we developed that city relatively early. What I did with the new edition was to look at the old material and see how it can be expanded, how it can be reimagined for the rebirth edition, how it can be tied together with Jehama's trilogy, which had massive political impact, and how some of the old ideas could be freshened up and brought into a into a new light uh, to give everything more momentum to figure out everything also from a design perspective. We had a very, very long design phase on the book. We started working on the actual art and architecture and the look and feel and theme of the city all the way back in 2017 already. So. We spend almost a year of just creating a visual feel for the new edition that would give us the information that we need to like make it all feel three-dimensional, so to speak. And if you know what the place looks like, if you really figured out what the conditions are under which people live, how they travel, how they interact with one another, what is important to them on a daily basis, what goods they have, what resources they need, all the other aspects fall into place, so to speak, because the world is, is our world. It's just projected 500 years into the future. Talking
3: about the economics of it and the architecture and uh, all those things made me think of a couple of things. One, I really wish my college economics professors had explained <laughs> the way our world works and the way that uh, you explain the economics of Justitian, because it really does add a lot to the immersiveness. And if you were to say to somebody, no, no, the economics are really important in Justitian. You know, they wait, this is an RPG game, but it really does situate what's happening really, really well. And I, that's one thing I really love about it. And of course, the architecture as well just makes everything feel different and new, but also not completely alien and constructed out of a whole cloth from nowhere. So that's just something that I really love. But I wanted to ask you a question, Marco, about this. Like as a design studio, I don't know a whole lot about how the process works when you're doing work for your clients, but I get the sense that this sort of really going down into the details below that visual level sort of what are all the things that inform that visual construct is something that is second nature to you. And so I kind of, I almost feel like it's this secret weapon that you guys have in terms of how you think about world building that most RPG companies are not, they just don't have that. They're not
2: immersed in it day after day. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to any of that. Well, well, I think the benefit comes from the fact that like when we brainstorm we tend to throw away all the obvious ideas first so we we try to get like everything out of the way that like everybody else would think of and then we focus in on the second or a third or a fourth or a fifth pass in iteration i don't know how many concepts we did of the elevator platforms in the beginning they were too big then they were too industrial then they were too magnificent then they were like they just weren't looking right until they were looking right So the level of exploration and the level of experimentation that goes into the early stages of every Genesis book is is really the foundation that everything in the book later on is built upon. We would never agree on the first idea because the first idea is most of the time what everybody else would think about as well and so what is really good in the situation that we're in is that we're all visual people so we can define something from a visual standpoint and aspect look at it from far away and and, and figure out if this is really what it should feel like and once you do that like everything gains more plasticity you manage to travel the world far easier through pictures before you've even defined the words around it and then once the pictures are in place Finding the right words for it is almost like the consequence of it. That's really what I prefer when we do any sort of expansion or world building or client work even is to just like really look at the ideas first. What are the ideas that are available in that direction? What has been done before? Of course, Justician is just a city, you know, like there have been other games that had their main uh, or major city on display. But why is this one in particular? Why does it work? What's the layout like? How does person A get from this point to this point? What does that travel entail? And then you fill those details with additional information and the story tells itself. Really, That's what it comes down to.
0: Yeah, I noticed when you mentioned, of course, other RPGs and video games or whatever may have showcased their own large city or capital city or something. When I was reading Justician, I felt it was a completely different experience compared to reading all those other major cities. Because when you look at another tabletop RPG, for instance, you'll get major landmarks, maybe useful shops for any adventurous you know characters, but you won't get into the nitty gritty details of, okay, well, this shop sells beer and this is why, and this goes into the, the history of the clan, why they make the beer in the first place or have this specialty brewing anyway. Or, you know, if you're a traveler going through different districts, this is how you'll feel or this is how people will treat you in each different one. I don't normally get that when I read about other cities and other RPGs. I thought it was a very unique experience and it, it transformed the reading experience into almost a like a lived experience for me.
2: What you're describing is an error that I see with a lot of fantasy writing in general. An author will go to great lengths to describe the exact measurements of a place. So this room is like 18 feet long and 14 feet wide. And then there's this brass door and it's engraved with all this bullshit. Like nobody needs that. Really what you need is the lived experience inside of that room, that district, that castle, that street, because those are the experiences that stick in your mind. At the end of the day, like, let's look at Scavenger Street. It's just one of the stallion streets, but it's where... All the scavengers come together. And if you then tell a story about a scavenger losing his mind because his girlfriend betrayed their relationship over a bunch of burn cusps with a local city judge, then you have a story. You have a mood. And I really think if you want to tell a a vast and very cohesive world, you need to tell all the stories that are available. The stories of the downtrodden, the stories of the winners, the stories of the people in between. And all these stories, they formulate, they inform what the city is about. And it's all, and always will be about the people that live in there.
3: That reminds me of something I was talking about with one of my players last night. The guy who plays the Helvetic, who keeps a scorecard of every single shot. Yeah, I love that. I love (laughs) it. He's fantastic. Uh, They're all great. But he said, oh, because I had a recurring character who was an apocalyptic who came back after many, many, many episodes showed up again. And it was like, what? It was this huge, you know, amazing plot twist for them. But he was talking about it later and he said, oh, you know, we've now had so many interactions with apocalyptics. Some of them we've helped. Some of them have like actively tried to kill us. Some of them we've had to negotiate with, you know, we're pirates out on the Mediterranean. You know, this one was an enemy and now maybe she's not, maybe she is. He was sort of saying, you know, people when they get into the Genesis, they need to know that like, All of the cults are like that. Anybody, any interactions that you have with people are actually just like interactions with human beings who happen to be part of this cult. And it was this fantastic moment of sort of him explaining this and sort of mentioning that because I think that's one of the most amazing things about Genesis is that you describe the cults and the cultures and sort of their interactions at a large meta level and the political level. And then you tell these stories about individuals. And so the individuals are sort of operating within that framework. And you can see that none of the walls are impermeable, or none of the boundaries are absolute, like people are still human beings. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about the game. And I I also... You know, we talk a lot about the meta plot, like in the um in the Discord and, and the meta plot is fantastic and there's all kinds of stuff. But you could actually you could run a campaign where the meta plot just doesn't even really affect the players at all and you could have a tremendous campaign. The characters in our campaign have never
2: actually encountered any palers yet, for example. Right? <laughs>
3: They've heard about him, you
2: know. I completely agree with you. And I think the meta plot exists to be an intellectual stimulus for the reader. You know, like you as a GM, you want to kind of know what's actually going on. So you all have all the cards to play whenever you want to play them. But, yeah, I mean, the the main story of Genesis is a human story. It's about humans that have to kind of get along with one another. And it's always individualism overriding everything. It's the cause of all drama. It's like everything breaks down because some guy decides to do something that he wasn't supposed to do because he's, you know, willing to go all the way. And like when we're talking about humans and organizations, I mean, like, let's look at the real world. You have police officers who are corrupt. You have police officers who are good people. You have everything in between. You have police officers that believe in God, those that don't, you know, like there's the job that they're doing, their commitment to their office is what brought them into the office. But like, they're still human beings. They still have their own thoughts, their own needs, their own own complaints their own problems at home. And that's what the Genesis has always been about. Like I don't like cookie cutter stories. I don't like telling the nth version of an apocalyptic that's just like the random knife fighter that smuggles drugs. It just gets boring after a while. So for me, From just a creative level, I think of the second book of Justician was really disciplinary action for me. Because I had to come up with different judges, with different clanners, with different apocalyptics, with different battalions. Everybody to tell their own story, everybody to be as meaningful as they can be within that frame. Still being recognizable as part of their cult through their means, through their way of thinking, through their actions, but still a human being at the core. Yeah, that really comes through.
0: Speaking of the metaplot, now, of course, we're not going to talk about any specifics on this episode or ever, <laughs> but when we read Justitian, and especially Moloch, we do learn a lot of different you know threads of the metaplot that may come together, may not. And there are just so many of these threads. How did you... Design Degenesis and build Degenesis with this metaplot in mind? Like, did it run through the core of your world building from the beginning? Or, I mean, it just feels so cohesive. And there are so many different stories related to it that you could get lost really easily just trying to track them all.
2: Well, I have to give credit to Chris, where it's due. And him and I, we were a really good brainstorming team. Anytime I worked with him, I always felt inspired and we fed off of each other throughout the early stages of creating Genesis*. So, The metaplot is really our grander story that we wanted to tell. And I think what happened in the beginning is that we had like just a few really strong ideas and we threw out nets into all directions. And we would like then pull them in and see what stuck. And we realized really quickly that the net was spun really well and everything was sticking. So whatever we would bring back somehow fit the story. And once we had like a myriad of different directions where the story could go, or how the story was interconnected and how it could be perceived by the people within the world. And then it was just a matter of putting that into words and writing and making it exciting. On the other hand, I really do think that my job as an author is also to entertain the reader. I don't think it's interesting to open a book and get everything presented on a silver platter within the first 10 pages. It's just not what I would think would be an exciting way to experience a book. Like, I really think our products should be in some sort of way, entertaining from the first page to the last, and there shouldn't be clutter in there. And uh, by not revealing everything up front and letting the reader work for it, the reader has an incentive to come back and has also a feeling of satisfaction when he solves it. It's not that I want to obscure it on purpose and make it harder to find. I just want it to be entertaining enough to keep people inspired. And I think if there's one thing that Genesis has proven over the years, it's the metaphor that brings people together And the end. Everybody wants to crack it and there's only a few who do or who have the foresight to see all the strings at the same time. But it keeps people together and it created this community. So I'm I'm really, I'm really grateful for it. I think for anyone enjoying the game line, anyone enjoying the books, it's really something that they can sink their teeth in and draw their own conclusions and connections and see how they would solve this bigger puzzle in a way. And so I'm still feeding off of strands that we threw out years ago, just pulling them in. It's just nets with lots of fish in them. And then I reveal part by part. (laughs) The metapod is
3: definitely the gift that keeps giving. (laughs) And I think um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately with the growth of the community, just about how it gives everybody a common frame of reference. It's kind of like all of the memes and tropes that you see in like in the D&D world like the Genesis has that in spades way more of them in in, in way more detail and I think that's actually really tremendously powerful. I was actually thinking about how many NPCs there are for example who are detailed interesting varied as you mentioned before and how impossible it is to have a favorite. I know that certain people in this discussion already you know have a stated favorite but... (laughs) But for me, it's much harder. I mean, when when we were doing that poll about, you know, what's your favorite NPC, I was having a really tough time with that. And I'm just curious, when you're going through that process of differentiating characters and sort of building them out, Marco, it doesn't really seem to me like you're trying to sort of hit a bunch of different marks. Like, oh, I want to have one who's a contrarian, or I want to have one who's, like, motivated by hatred. You don't have a whole set of tools for that, so... I'm just curious, like, what are the prompts or things that sort of engage you to help you do those differentiations between characters? I mean,
2: personally, I have to say, like, characters are the easiest to write for me because I always write from life. I always write out of experiences, out of people that I've met. Like, for me personally, like, King Cockroach is a perfect example of a person that I've met a million times over. It's a person that wants to be famous no matter what. They want to make it somehow, they want to belong to a group and they're just not capable of it. I had this situation a million times over when I would give a workshop and teach art and you have the portfolio review day and then you have like the 20 year olds, they show you their portfolio and it's all good, you know, it can be developed into something. But then you have the occasional 45 year old who just quit his job, left his wife and child behind to pursue a career in art. And you look at the sketchbook and it's terrible and you just want to tell the guy, dude, like, wake up, go home, apologize to your wife, apologize to your boss, stick to what you were doing before. Like, don't try this. Like, it's too late. Like, there's no way you'll ever catch up. And so for me, I'm really grateful for having met thousands of people in my life. I feed off of that and I create characters on the fly through that. It's very easy for me. It's like almost, I don't have to think. I'll get into their mindset and I think about like, ah, oh, what's their motivation? Why does he want to do this? And what does he really want to give to get to his goal? And then I'm already in and then it just goes on its own.
0: That's incredible, first of all. You didn't hear me because I was muted, but I was laughing really hard.
2: <laughs> but it's the truth, really. It is the truth.
0: And second of all, that means anyone is fair game. Anyone who Marco knows. <laughs>
1: <laughs> everybody's sweating bullets right now who am i <laughs> no, but uh, you must have met people like that too you know
2: like i do think if there's one thing that Jichen's characters are particularly known for is that they're very close to life their motivations are very very related even like big hitters like bicker and ba like you can totally understand how frustrated like you understand that he's living a lie and, and that he's being praised for something that he would have never achieved if he didn't break with his own religion and and like just having that as a burden as a cross to bear is terrible and then it goes on for years and you have to march to the city that praises you year after year and like live that lie over and over again it's devastating like no matter what kind of hero you are you're like imagine metallica like Every concert, they have to play Nothing Else Matters. Do you think they like it still? I hadn't even
0: thought of that. (laughs) I mean,
2: they must be in hell. They must be in hell. Oh, we did like four new albums, and these people are still talking about Nothing Else Matters as if it came out yesterday. It's just devastating.
0: And I think that the fact that you draw from real life is just what makes... As you said, the characters so relatable, but also just the stories so relatable. I think you mentioned once before on Discord that if we try and draw from things that already exist as fiction, then it's just a distilled version of, of something real. And so our version would be even more distilled and more yeah. distant from reality. So when it comes to coming up with stories and these characters, obviously you mentioned real people that you know for the characters or or new. But when it comes to, like, stories on the website that you post or stories of events that are going on in towns and villages across the protectorate, like, what do you draw from to get those ideas and inspirations?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not trying to repeat my ideas. That is the trope that you can easily fall into, especially when you're trying to write a telephone book of a companion. So like you constantly need to double check, is this good enough in comparison to everything you did before? Is this just a repetition? Are you being redundant? Or is it actually bringing something new to the table? With Justician, it was relatively easy because I had a clear idea of what the Protectorate needs to provide for Justician to function. So like just looking at it from an economical standpoint, where are the resources coming from that the city needs to be able to function? and who controls the resources, and why, and what kind of story is in there to be told. And then you easily get from a very broad stroke level of like, okay, where's energy coming from, to, you know, almost like a crime sabotage story as to how the chroniclers got in charge of mobilists. And then you travel back in time, and you kind of retroactively built that story out. You know, the chroniclers, at some point in time in history, got in charge, but what's the story behind that? And then... You already know you need to hide something in there for the reader to be excited about it. Otherwise, it's just another energy producing city. What are you going to do there? Like, It's not very exciting unless you give the city a special secret or some sort of darker history or hidden plot that can be uncovered by the reader and the players.
3: You mentioned you know, not just another energy producing city. It's not just another uh, Houston or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, But that makes me think about something that I think sometimes trips people up when they come into the genesis because the dominant paradigm in the RPG world, I think, is the, you know, uh, the people who are walking around who are good are like, you know, I've got the good uniform on and I'm lawful good and I'm a paladin. You know, <laughs> and they're like, oh, the kobolds are evil and like everybody knows. And it's like yeah. you don't have to make any individual decisions about whether your actions are good or evil. You're just automatically on the right side or the wrong side. So that's one thing. Yeah. And I I think that because of the emphasis on individual characters, I think that the Genesis is far different and much richer and and deeper for that.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah,
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah. yeah. And again, that's like it's one of those things where you can't just resort to the TLDR and say, oh, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic game that's like D&D, because it's, it's, that's not at all. It's a very, very different kind of thing. It's like saying, I like movies. I like tabletop RPGs. Well, okay, well, what kind? And So, I just wonder when... when... My argument
2: in all of that is always, like, do you like life? <laughs> I mean, like, you can't run around and, like, label people as evil or good just because they belong to a certain group, or that by itself is generalization, and generalization never works. It's just it's just automatism to fall back into, and it's, like, escapism as at its core, but, like, I mean, you just have to ask yourself, like, what would you do in real life? Would you really attack this guy? Are you crazy? You know? Right. Look (laughs) at you with your, like, buddy one character and (laughs) six pieces of ammo. You know, are you really going to do this? Or are you going to shut up and, like, try to, you know, find some good allies or... Go report it to the judges or have somebody else deal with, you know, the creep that you're trying to get rid of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really think life itself gives way more solutions than just always using violence. And what I really hope the Genesis players are doing is trying to find different methods of solving whatever kind of drama they're confronted with instead of just going always the violent route and always like, oh, we're the good guys. We're going to clean this up but actually questioning what their job is or what their purpose in life is or how to solve this particular scene or this particular scenario. Because really, all I wanna tell is a story about humanity 500 years in the future. We're not gonna change fundamentally in our core values by that time. Like That's still gonna be the same. People are still gonna lie. People are still gonna love. People are still going to make bad decisions. And that's really, uh, there is a lot of, there, like, especially in just this scene, there's a lot of irony. It's the irony of life. Yeah. The players yep. are part of it. And they need to understand that they're not the shining bright heroes. They're just like numbers. And the best they can do is carve out an niche in that world for themselves and survive long enough to be known and recognized. And they're going to have the same feeling as they would if that would happen to them in real life. They wouldn't suddenly start flying, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think that comes through really well. As a matter of fact, again, last night in the post-game discussion we talked about, one of the characters was getting despondent because he would had to do some things that he felt bad about. And they, they went against this concept. And I will say that one of the things that the mechanics do really well is the fact that it's so lethal. People talk about it being a lethal game. Right. But in my experience, that does exactly what you talked about, Marco, which is there are other games where it's not as lethal. But that means that the solution is to go around hacking and slaying all the time. Right. Because Well, I can tell you life is
2: pretty lethal. If i run around <laughs> asking for somebody yeah. to shoot me, it's not like I'm going to survive magically. Like it's, it's just not going to happen. It's a weird discussion to have. It probably comes down to what and why people are playing RPGs to begin with. Maybe there are people out there that just want to do it for the idea of escapism and like having a good time, but then there's a million other systems out there that can give you exactly that kind of feeling of heroics and splendor. Then you don't need to play the Genesis because it doesn't provide the base for it. I mean, you can turn it into a superhero game if you want to, but like it's just, you're just gonna run dry on the material after a while if you just go um, sumo slaying the entire time shoot yourself up with nanites right. and hunt for marauders. It's like, well, Of course, it's going to be a different kind of game. You might not even need our books for that. <laughs> right.
0: I do explain Degenesis a lot in those terms. I talk to a lot of people who ask about the game because I just talk about it so often. And I do end up explaining things like, well, if you've played D&D, it's really not the same. But if you're familiar with like Call of Cthulhu or... Even Vampire the Masquerade, where it's more narrative-focused, more drama-focused, and you may not survive at the end of the session, then I tend to recommend Degenesis to those people. Yeah, Because I remember reading Justitian, and of course I've read the other books, so I know this central motif of Degenesis already, but it just struck me how the normal, ordinary people in Justitian, who just go about their lives and are nice and kind-hearted usually end up with the short end of the stick and it's usually because there are some really powerful people pulling the strings and they need to do dirty stuff and these poor innocent people are just the victims and i thought about how real that is like in this world real and also how it's very different from what people might expect from another rpg where let's say You are good and you're kind-hearted and you go about doing these good things and you're lauded as a hero and everyone knows about it. But that's an escapist fantasy, as we've just talked about. I don't know that that kind of gameplay would result in the happy ending that people expect if it were to be done in Genesis.
2: It all comes down to the philosophy of what you believe in, but I do believe in the idea that people are just not good to one another in general. You know, people abuse one another, and if they see an opening, they're going to try and take advantage of it. And Genesis has always been a game that already has a very strong depletion of everything, luxury, resources, food, goods, money, ammo. And to survive in a world like that, you just need to abuse other people or you're going to be abused. It's very much what it is, but like that's how life has always been. It's always been an abusive system, and those in power abuse those who aren't. The guy who's running around through the world fully naive and like just wants to return to his family, he might have a great goal and it's noble, but he's probably the first to fall under the sword. If you know, somebody decides to ax him or takes advantage of him. I'm not proposing that as a life model as well. I'm just trying to reflect upon that. Because it's such a greater topic of our humanity and of our society and how we interact with one another. It's not to celebrate it. I'm also not trying to put it on a moral pedestal and question it. I'm just trying to show it because I think it just needs to be shown to be realistic. Otherwise, I'm presenting a world that is foamy and cushiony and feel-goody that I just don't, I wouldn't recognize.
0: Yeah, and that's what I i guess what I was trying to get at is that the situations and the stories in Justician or in the other books, they have this power to them. It's not good. It doesn't feel great, but it is impactful. It leaves me thinking about it later after I put the book down. And I don't have that same experience with other games. Some books and some movies, yeah, but it's one of those things that stays with me and I guess just elevates Genesis. Like you said, you're not putting it on a pedestal. You're not saying that this is what I believe in, but just this is the reality of some people's lives. Yeah. And for those of us who have never experienced that, it's a little bit like a wake-up call, I guess. And I personally like it. (laughs) I think it's great because of that. But I know, yeah, I I know that there are some people who wouldn't enjoy it as much.
2: Oh, of course not. I mean, like, the Genesis is very bleak, and it's a 2,500-page-long human tragedy, if you want to sum it up like that. There's a lot of drama in there, but I also think there's a lot of good humor in there. There's a lot of uh, really fun stuff in there to be explored. There's good science fiction hidden in there. There's something for everyone to uh, make the trip enjoyable if they're not liking the general feel of the game. But like I also cannot change the general appeal of the game just to hopefully try and please everyone. I need to stay true to what I want to do, and this is a story I want to tell.
0: And I'm not saying that you should. I'm not saying. No, no, I was no. just musing out loud about it. I didn't
2: get it like that. I'm just wondering if I look at the general the Genesis fan, they're attracted by the realism of the story, the human factor. I'm not talking about the primer, I'm not talking about the recombination group. I'm talking about just the human aspect of it. And I think that draws people in to begin with, and that's how they start liking the game because it's a dirty game. It doesn't give you a lot of advantages. And you have to be smart about how you're going to survive. So I think that is the most attractive part because it doesn't try to sell you a concept where everything is going to be super if you just hold on long enough and gain enough experience points. That's <laughs> not what's going to happen. You're going to get more responsibility. Things are going to suck even harder if you reach a certain rank. People are going to expect you to make decisions. And we all know people don't want to make decisions. It puts you into a disadvantage to put yourself out in the open because you draw the crossfire on you. Any person that steps forward with an idea, will be the first person to be killed in any sort of confrontation. So that really is the core concept of the Genesis. And I think, Erwan, you've been playing, I mean, you've been GMing way more than anybody else in Justice in itself. What does it feel like
1: for you when you run your group? Well, it feels like it's very, very dense. Like there's really a lot to keep in mind when you're playing. In the city just to make sure that you stick to the vision and you also convey each and every quarter and neighborhood and location accurately that ties back to one of the advices that we like giving is like it's easy to want to involve everyone because you have like 100 npcs that are fleshed out you want to like phew, machine gun npcs all over the place which i personally think is a big mistake because as soon as you introduce them all, who are you going to be relying on and uh, what is going to be the dynamic of the game. But in the end, playing in gestation is like, okay, I'm in this big, 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 big sandbox, but I have most of the tools. The only thing I really need to do now is coming up with a cool story. But then once I have this story in my head, it's super easy to play because everything is just laid out and I just have to be okay. But what about your players?
2: Do they feel like they're being taken advantage of at every corner and every opportunity?
1: They're definitely doing a lot of mistakes and they're definitely paying the price. But I told them before and like, and they know because they're familiar with the setting. But I told them very early on that justitian was an unforgiving lover and that it was going to be a very complex situation. Just from the fact that some of them are not citizens, that's completely unbalancing the way the relationship works. Like we have two scrappers and two clanners. One of the claners is a citizen, the other one is not, and the two other characters are not even, like, they are, like, former criminals. So it's, like, it's a very specific power dynamic because they are trying to stay away from the judges, the chronicler, the spitalians, just because they don't want to have more problems. So, yeah, I feel if you play it right, the setting is very interesting to play because you have, like, all those opportunities to mess up with the players, but also that creates nice situations, like conflicts generates like those interesting situations where... Okay, so now we have to fix this. So who are we going to rely on? And you have to find new NPCs to rely on that can help you out. And those two can become your allies, but they can also betray you. And so that's just like life. Like you have a problem, or do you fix it? And uh, come up with a solution. You have like three hours to do that. Arm's way, for example, was a nice way to show that you have a very simple problem. Take this uh, package from point A to point B. In your mind, it's like, okay, it's easy. It's like just 20-ish kilometers. We can do that easy. And then you come up with all the conflicts during those eight hours of walking just make these stories super interesting. And I think Justician does that very well. It gives you all the tools and all the cards to understand what kind of stories can be made from that sand. Yeah, and the
2: city itself is harsh and unforgiving, like any authoritarian system would be, you know, basically imprisons its people but offers them security at the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, for example, the first time Duncan he was playing an elvetic back then the first time he arrived in the city and he was checked by the spitalians the judges everybody was trying to make sure that the guy was safe to enter in the city and he was thinking well i'm, I'm a fucking elvetic I, I should be able to enter the city and do whatever i want but no no you're you're, you're nothing you're just like one of the infinite amount of mosquitoes that are trying to live off from the city so you're going to behave and you're going to respect the rules and that was funny because learning the rules through the character was because that was back when Justitian was not released so they didn't know like the iron laws or anything that could mess up with them and so he arrived very very happy and he was like okay I have my, I my trailblazer and everything and I was like 2 too 2 no trailblazer I mean you can have your trailblazer but you're gonna have to hide it properly and respect the rules like you don't have an open carry weapon permit so have fun and I was like but that's my weapon well they don't care <laughs> and that's just funny you know it's like uh, you have to play by the rules and the rules don't care who you are
3: that actually brings to mind something else that i think is really different about the genesis and one of the things that i really enjoy is like for example the killing game is a good example of this where there are these larger machinations going on right and i think about it in terms of like wars in our world right where there's this huge thing and it's the big story of, you know, World War 1 or World War 2 or whatever, but then there's thousands and thousands of stories within that. Yeah. And for each one of those stories, it's the most important thing that ever happened in those people's lives, and they were just a small cog in this much larger thing that was going on, and I just kind of love that because you can you know, like that's already happened where the characters were in too long when that happened and they were a big part of it. And then now they're interacting with other people whose story was different and they might not have even been on the same side. And they're like, okay, yeah, no, that was the most important thing that ever happened in my life too, but it had a different impact on me in a different way. And so it's just, I love that about it. It it took a little bit of getting used to as a GM initially to get wrapped my head around. And I think a little bit for the players too, but it makes for a lot of richness and depth. It also means that, um, No large event ever sort of has a single narrative to it.
2: Or just a single person experiencing it, you know? Right. Because that defies the logic of of a cohesive world uh, where everything is interconnected in a way, you know? Like it's less connected than it is today, but it's still connected. People still travel for trade. People still go from one place to the other. People still make families in new places. And um, I do think what I really have tried over the years is to connect those stories with one another, to give a feeling of like, These are events that are not impactful to just one person. It's not just one king losing their daughter. It's, you know, the spitalians in the harbor losing their hospital. It's the scrappers losing their district. It's, uh, you know, every action affects multiple groups. And these multiple groups are then individually affected by the individuals they're composed of. Not Everybody will be affected in the same way negatively, some will profit from it positively, some will use the momentum and just try and run away with the treasures that they plundered from a palace and try to get the best cut out of it. Really, what it comes down to is these stories matter because they're affecting a lot of people at the same time. Characters are always part of it. A lot of the complaints that I heard over the years is that, yeah, well, the adventures are so railroady and they don't give agency to. The characters, which is complete nonsense. As an author, I sit here, I have personal agency right now to talk to you guys, but if everyone comes to me tomorrow and he tells me he doesn't want to work for me any longer, there's absolutely nothing I can do about that, except for dealing with the problem that I never wanted to have. There goes my agency out of the window. I might be wanting to do something really productive tomorrow, but then I have to deal with a problem at hand that is not part of my agenda at all. So this is how real life works. Things happen, then you have to deal with it problems arise and you have to deal with it. No matter how much you dream about like, just doing your thing and having your agency all day long and being able to do whatever you want to do, the world around you impedes on your life and continuously forces you to make decisions. And the Genesis does just that. It just proposes that there is things happening in the background which can be either considered white noise or really impeding problems. And how the characters deal with that is what makes the story in most cases it makes the story great if you use it right
1: and i think that's that's actually something that's pretty funny because i didn't think about the killing game for a long time like it's always in the background we talk with people on discord and everything but I don't remember who, but someone on Discord was like, yeah, but I don't know how to make the characters play in Toulon, blah, 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 because the, the story feels like it's railroaded And I thought about this moment where you could play the adventure completely differently. Like, you have the framework of all the shit that's going on, like the city is exploding, war everywhere. But What if your story is not about trying to save the city? What if your story is about trying to save the people that you love in the city? And that ties back to the first advice that Marco gave back in the days is like, make the people attached to the city of Toulon, make them have friends and like links to the city so that they feel engaged. And back then I was like, I agree with that because I want the players to feel like they have to save the city. But then when this person asked the question, I was like, actually, you could could just decide to completely stay away from the major players and just go through the city to try to, I don't know, save the students that you, uh, you brought to the city from wherever or you can decide to try and find your friend in the scrappers that you know might have been uh, enrolled in the mass conversion of the iron brothers or whatever and i think that's the strength of the adventures that are brought to the table is like they give you this huge framework with all the events and what is supposed to happen if nothing does anything but it also gives you the freedom to say okay this is what's going to happen in the background but what i'm going to play is completely different but it still goes through that set of events and i think that's super powerful when you think about it like you could do the same with Black Atlantic.
2: Hell yeah, you can play a group that manages uh, to get refugees out of the city. You can play a group that tries to set up supply lines for the people who are trapped inside the cauldron. You can play, you know, the medics that are coming together to patch up the Beaumont. There's so many ways to go about this because you know what this overall story is. You can basically have the overarching story play out in the background while you pick out any kind of detail and play it with the players at hand, give them a completely different feeling for the scenario unfolding in front of them. And they're gonna be spectators maybe, but they're gonna also be able to have their agency in in the situation that is arising in front of them. And what they do and the decisions that they make are what really informs the campaign. And that's basically summed it up real well that's why all the three different adventures can be played in any sort of combination, any sort of storyline, as long as the GM is creative enough to really use the material just as the groundwork and not something that is set in stone and him being afraid that the RPG police will show up at his
1: door to check up on him. You didn't kill Badis. this is bad. No, I think that's super powerful. And I think that's a message that people don't understand enough. It's railroaded because we need to make the story engaging and like the narrative impactful when you read it. If you just read like a set of possibilities, it's very complex for you to even imagine what's going to happen. Because if, if it was just like a list of options where either you help uh, Amza and you do this or you help blah, 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 and you do that. And you have like just 10 possibilities coming out of one scene. What are we supposed to do? Like take care of the 10 possibilities? And then it's just like an ever-expanding tree. But by going through this narrative from point A to point B and without ever stopping to say, okay, this is all what you can do, I think that makes it even more impactful for the reader. Going back to it, it's like what makes all the adventures so powerful.
0: We are just about finished with our hour. So was there any like last remarks or final questions that we wanted to talk about or share? Well,
2: I have something to say. Okay. Okay. So you two are amazing. And I, I love Train to Park and Nora, And I love your YouTube channel. And I just want to thank you guys for all the support and everything that you're doing around in and around the community. Also, this podcast is amazing. And I hope we get a shitload of listeners and you guys keep it up the way you've done it before. And I'm really, I'm really proud and stoked that we have such great minds in the community that produce that high of a level of fan work and community contributions and I hope in the future we see each other again we continue to talk
0: oh definitely yeah this would be great to do again and thank you for your kind words that's really means a lot
2: yeah I just feel like it needs to be appreciated from from the dev side as well when you start out creating a game line like it's not a given that you're going to get fans like you guys so I'm very happy and proud about that
3: thank you
0: thank you <laughs> everybody's just blushing it's
1: like oh <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: silence. Oh, no. <laughs> oh you guys <laughs> I'll stop it you guys all right well Eric and Marco thank you for joining us on this special post justician episode of the cluster speaks we definitely hope our listeners had a great time and learned a lot from Marco answering our questions and got some ideas for their own campaigns in the future Maybe we'll be releasing more episodes soon. We'll have to find out.
2: You never know. <laughs> one never knows. You guys have a good one. Enjoy your weekend.
0: You too. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And check out Degenesis at www.degenesis.com.
1: Don't forget to listen, citizens, sometime. The Cluster Speaks.